So uh, I'm so glad that you all are here, uh, that there is a, a church so close to the city. I'm just delighted that um, to be a part of the EPC and to be able to be here and meet all of you and worship with you today. Um, there's so many people in this area that need to hear about the love of God. And I'm just glad that you're here. You have a lovely church, uh, and it has been great to meet everyone here this morning. Uh, before I came to Atlanta, I was a campus staff with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship for three years and planted a campus ministry in Florence, South Carolina. And I got to spend three years of my life with college students who were really excited about Jesus. Uh, it was wonderful to spend three years with such passionate young people. And something that I started to notice during my time with them is that as a culture, we are beginning to experience shame much more than I think we have in decades past in the United States. Uh, shame is an ugly word. I can think of no more destructive force in our families, in our communities, in our relationships, and in our culture than shame. Uh, in the United States, we've become much more familiar with it over the past decade uh, with the rise of social media and internet communication. It is really interesting to think that Facebook was founded in February 2004. It's been a little over 10 years since Facebook was created, about, uh, I guess, 14 years ago. And in that time span, it has completely changed the way that we relate to each other. So in, in Christianity Today, there's an article on this in May 2017 called Shame, Guilt, and Fear, What 1,000 Americans Avoid Most. And Bob Smiatana writes the following about our present struggles with shame in the United States. Many Americans are more worried about their reputation than their conscience. They worry less about guilt and fear and more about avoiding shame. Shame has become particularly powerful in American culture in the internet age, said Scott McConnell, executive director of Lifeway Research. A single mistake or embarrassing moment posted on social media can ruin a person's life. Social media and internet shaming has given rise to books that sound the alarm regarding the dangers of shame like Sue Sheff's recent book, Shame Nation, The Global Epidemic of Online Hate. In it are recounted the stories of person after person who have become victims of online shaming, trolling, public humiliation, bullying, and viral video scandals, and how they have processed through these tragic events, or worse, how they have fallen prey to the very worst effects resulting from shame, including suicide, PTSD, and depression. And as Brene Brown mentions in her TED talk titled Listening to Shame, she gave that talk at TED 2012, you can look it up online if you're interested, Brene Brown mentions that we are in a shame epidemic, and shame is a focus on self, while guilt is a focus on behavior. Guilt says, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. Shame says, I'm sorry, I am a mistake. And today, no one is safe from this. If you go to the grocery store and you get mad at your kids for 
30 seconds and somebody has a cell phone there, all of a sudden you can become hashtag angry mom. And then all of the hate messages and things start flowing in and you have lost your privacy when it gets tweeted to, to 2 million people. Uh, we can lose that privacy. We can lose our reputation in a moment. And it has never been more frail than it is now, our, our public reputation. So in such a culture, how are we supposed to live in that? And I believe that God is the only one who is strong enough to actually deal with shame and its destructive effects. So this morning, what I'd like to do is explore a passage with you where God intervenes in one man's life to rescue him from his shame. And so if you'll turn with me to John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. This is early in Jesus' ministry just shortly after he has called the first disciples. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana and Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <laughs> so there are three ways that God deals with shame in this passage that I want to draw our attention to. First is that God chooses to deal with shame because God wants to, and he is merciful. Second, God deals with shame by discreetly giving you credit for what Jesus has done. And third, God deals with shame by paying the enormous cost that we owe out of his own inexhaustible resources. So first, God chooses to deal with shame because God is merciful and he wants to. To, to understand the full context of this story, we have to learn a little bit about first century Palestine. And according to D.A. Carson and his commentary on the Gospel of John, a wedding celebration in this culture could last as long as a week, and it was the groom's responsibility to provide for everything involved, especially the wine. And Carson mentions that there is some evidence that suggests that were the groom to fail to provide, as is occurring in this story, he would not only be subject to public shame, but he could also give the bride's family grounds for a lawsuit against him. And I want you to imagine, if we don't know how old the groom was, if you can imagine being just a young 20-something guy, you're excited, you're about to get married, 
you've spent all that you had on this wedding and all of a sudden the wine ran out because you have nothing more to give. You're bankrupt. You're broke. Well, in a, a culture like this, this would have been the equivalent of the bad Twitter post that went to a thousand people overnight and LinkedIn contacts and bosses and would have ended your public reputation and career. Uh, it would have been a black mark against you for your adult life because in honor-shame cultures, that doesn't go away. And so when Mary comes to tell Jesus that the wine has run out, this is a serious situation. And Jesus has this interesting response because in verse 4, he says, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. When, when Jesus says woman here, the Greek word is gune, which in this context would have been kind of like saying ma'am, like we do in the South, except you would never use that with your mother. It was more like a polite thing that you would say to a lady on the street, you know, like ma'am, hey, nice to see you, something like that. For whatever reason, Jesus keeps his mom at arm's length, politely, but a, a little jarringly to us. And then he follows that by saying, what's this have to do with me? My hour hasn't come. We have to understand that in John's gospel, Jesus' hour is when he is crucified for the sins of all humanity and all peoples are drawn to him. We see Jesus say that his hour has come for the first time and derailed from that mission. John has also labeled him not just as a rabbi, but he's labeled him as the creator God, the one who created everything. In chapter 1, he said that Jesus is the eternal word through whom all things were made. And now he's just called the first disciples, and they haven't fully figured that out yet. But Mary realizes that Jesus can do something to help. She's had these angelic visitations that have told her that her son is going to be the savior of the people and that he's going to rescue them from their sins, we, we can wonder if Mary even really fully knew about Jesus' divinity. It would be kind of interesting to know that your child is actually God in the flesh and not just your baby. But for Mary, we, we know that she probably knew something, and because of that, she comes to Jesus for help. But Jesus chooses in this instance to respond and to act. He doesn't have to. It's not necessarily mandated for him to intervene on the bridegroom's behalf. But Jesus allows himself, as he did many other times, to be approached, pulled aside, inconvenienced, and asked to intervene in a situation. And he does so because he has mercy on the groom. So first, God chooses to deal with our shame not because he has to but because he wants to and he's merciful. Second, God deals with shame by discreetly giving you credit for what Jesus has done. Take a look at verses 8 through 9. Uh, it's Jesus speaking to the servants. He says, And he said to them, Now draw some wine out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, although the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. No one knows what Jesus has done here except for the disciples and the servants. I wonder if this is why Jesus holds Mary at arm's length in verse 4, because if Mary is asking him to do something in a public context, he realizes that he can't actually say okay and go do it where everybody finds out about it 
or else the groom is going to be shamed, and then his life is going to be ruined. It won't do any good. So I think here that Jesus is actually holding Mary off a bit in order to have plausible deniability. So he can go back and behind the scenes, intervene, produce this wine, and then he credits all of it to the groom. And what's interesting about this is that this is what Jesus did when his hour came to all of Jesus's access, all of Jesus's honor, all of his glory, all of his performance was attributed to us. But that exchange went both ways because not only was all of his goodness and righteousness and reputation attributed to us, all of our shame and sin and bad reputation was put on him. And he died a torturous, murderous, gruesome death, exiled, cast out, abandoned, where we should have been. So Jesus, God himself, deals with our shame by taking everything that belongs to him and crediting that to us. Uh, this is why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 5 that God made him to be no sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That All the righteousness and glory of Jesus would actually be placed on us. So second, God deals with shame by giving you credit for what Jesus has done. And he goes behind the scenes to rescue this bridegroom. But third, God deals with shame by paying the enormous cost that we owe out of his own inexhaustible resources. When the wine is brought to the master of the feast, the master of the feast calls it the good wine. And D.A. Carson also mentions in his commentary that in the ancient world, wine was often mixed with water, and it was diluted to about a third or a tenth of its original strength, which made it more like a light beer in regard to its alcohol content rather than what we would go get at the store. That would be considered, according to him, strong drink. Uh, however, even though uh, the, the wine is mixed and diluted, and people have gotten into all sorts of arguments about, was, was this really alcohol, right? Uh, was it just grape juice? And I'd like to answer that for you. Um, so the, the thing is that when the master of the feast says that, you know, in general... Uh, once everybody has drunk freely of the wine, then the good wine is put away and they bring out the poor wine, right? But you've saved the good wine until now. When he talks about people drinking freely, the Greek word used there is methustosin, and it literally means when they have gotten drunk. So in general, not necessarily at this feast, uh, but in general, at a Palestinian wedding celebration that might last a week, after people have had their fill, then you bring out the poor wine because no one cares. But in this case, Jesus has made the good wine. So we can know two things about what was happening with Jesus' wine here. One, it had alcohol in it. And two, it was really good. And let's, let's look at just how much wine Jesus made. In verse 6, it says that there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. The Greek actually says that each jar held two to three metretas, 
or in other words, that's 70 liters to 105 liters per jar. So let's pause for a moment and consider what it would have cost the groom to purchase all of this wine on his own. We'll be conservative, 70 liters for the small jars, 70 liters times six jars divided by 0.75 liters, since the average bottle of wine you could go out and get at the grocery store is 750 milliliters, but divided by 0.75 liters times, to be conservative, 35 bucks a bottle for a good wine. There are wines that are way more expensive than that, but for practical purposes, let's just say a good wine is 35 bucks. All of that totals to $19,600. And that is a smaller quantity than what Jesus made. That's a conservative estimate. Uh, he probably made somewhere in the ballpark of like $25,000 worth of wine in a blink. And if you are a young man in your mid-20s and you're ready to be married, your entire life savings, if you have a good job and if you're really smart with your money, might be half that. But if you are not in a good job and you are not great with your money and you're not successful and you're in first century Palestine, you might have to become someone's servant for several years to pay that debt off. And what this shows us is that in a moment, Jesus provided all that the groom lacked because the groom was bankrupt. Couldn't provide anymore. If, if he had been able to provide more, he would have but he couldn't. And Jesus comes in and makes the best wine to save him from his shame. And this is much like what Jesus has done for us when his hour is come. Because as the jars for the Jewish rites of purification are connected with sacrifices that had to be performed repeatedly in the Old Covenant, there was a constant cleansing and washing that had to happen because you could never fully have all of your shame and sin taken away. We, we continue to fall back into it and we'd have to be cleansed again and fall back into it and cleansed again with the new covenant that Jesus brings with his new wine, with his blood, there is a sacrifice given once for all that permanently washes us clean and stains us brilliantly white with him. In the old covenant, which required people to cleanse themselves before they could come into the presence of God, lest they be struck dead or severely afflicted. I mean, there's a reason that in the Old Covenant, even the high priest had to tie a rope around his ankle before he would walk into the Holy of Holies, because if he somehow had become dirty or unclean, even if he didn't realize it, if he walked into the Holy of Holies in the presence of God, God could strike him dead and nobody else could go in, so they'd have to drag him out. There's a reason that they tied that rope around because you had to be clean before you could come into the presence of this holy God. And the new covenant, God has taken all of Jesus' cleanness as the spotless Lamb of God and he has put the cleanness of Jesus upon you so that you have complete and free access to God without fear. And as the Old Testament law had the power to show you what it was to live a holy life, but condemned you and had no power to redeem you from your guilt and your shame when you failed to live up to it, the gospel of the new covenant proclaims to you that all of the punishment, the reputational degradation, the shame, 
the just broken life that you had, all of that was placed upon Jesus, and in exchange, he died for you, and God the Father placed all of his reputational honor, all of his wealth, all of his privilege, all of his access upon you. And that is how God revealed his glory through this sign as the Messiah, that Jesus revealed his glory as the anointed one, as our rescuer, and how the disciples believe in that. So where does this leave all of us? Well, if you're here and you are not a Christian, I'm not sure how to deal with shame other than Jesus. Because if you place your reputation and your worth in what you do or in your career or even just good behavior in society, uh, people can take that from you. But Jesus is offering you the opportunity to take your old life and hand it over to him along with all of that shame and to receive in return a new life that is no longer based on your performance, that is no longer based on how well you have been a good person or whether or not you're Abe ever trolled on Facebook, but it is hidden with Christ and God. It is an eternal life that no one can take from you because Jesus has purchased that for you with his blood. And if you live in fear of that, that if my career ends, then I will be worthless and life is no longer living, I want to tell you that Jesus has a life to offer to you. And no one can take it away. And if that's you, as we move to celebrating the Lord's Supper and as we close out today, before you leave here,